I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, or Thyatira, whichever way you want to pronounce that, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and he's saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lori, for that scripture reading. Man, I'm blessed to be up here with you this morning and preaching from that scripture. It's a powerful one, so I'm excited to be up here. We're in week two of our series in Revelation, so we skipped from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation. Um, And as Pastor Henry Thompson brilliantly stated last Sunday in this service, he said, we started from the bottom, now we're here. (laughs) And if some of you didn't laugh, you might not know Drake, um, but Drake is a musician. That's okay if you haven't listened to any Drake songs, but I think that's the first time I've heard Drake quoted in a Sunday morning worship service. Um, So only here at the downtown campus, folks. Uh, you might be wondering why. Why did we move all the way from Genesis to Revelation? Besides just doing the bookends of the Bible, why would we study Revelation? And Revelation is intimidating for many of us. Uh, It's confusing, we're fearful of approaching it, and so we often don't study it. But the message and thrust of Revelation is really important for us today. And there are two reasons why we should study Revelation that I'll give you this morning. The first is that it answers the question, have God's promises failed? Will God stay true to his promises? And this is the same question that was asked in Genesis over and over again because in Genesis 12, God promised Abram, he promised him that he would be a father of nations. He promised that there would be a land and those promises drive the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they really set the backdrop for the entire Old Testament. And then that Old Testament sets the foundation for the New Testament. See, the Bible is one coherent story, and Revelation asks the same question, will God stay true to his promises? And it even asks a greater question, will God ultimately stay true to his promise? 
And so the book has a lot of encouragement and warning for Christians throughout the centuries and for us today. And Revelation, it also has something else to teach us. It, it speaks to real churches in a real moment in history. This series, we are focusing on the opening chapters of Revelation. So only Revelation 1 through 3. So the first chapter, John has this vision of Jesus. And we just heard that brilliantly read by Lori. And then the second chapters are actually the letters to the seven churches that Jesus is communicating to John to write down. And we find the names of those seven churches that Lori read earlier in verse 11. So you can look there with me. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. As we look back on this ancient document, the, the issues that Jesus is dealing with by way of John are really important for these first century Christians. And they're equally meaningful for us now. And uh, if you look again at verse 19, so look down at verse 19, John records the words of Jesus here, who says, write therefore the things that you have seen and the things that are and those that are to take place after this. Often when we think of Revelation, we think of end times prophecy. And that's okay, that's much of the book. And it deals with a lot of eschatology, which is a complicated theological word for the study of the end times. But Jesus is saying something slightly different here. He's saying, write down about the things that are. Jesus has something to say to those churches then. And the issues that Jesus is dealing with in those churches are similar issues to what we're dealing with now. So this book is just as relevant for us in the 21st century as it was in the first century. So where should we begin? And I think the best place to begin is by talking about where we're at in the 21st century. What are some of the distinctives of our cultural moment? In an article recently published by the Huffington Post, the author claims that Americans are buying twice as many goods as they did in the 1960s. He observed that people think that by purchasing more and more, they will somehow increase their sense of well-being. But in fact, the opposite is true. The article reports that the psychology of materialism is actually drowning us in unhappiness. The article quotes David Myers, who wrote The American Paradox and, and Spiritual Hunger in the Age of Plenty. Myers says this, Compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence, slightly less happiness, and a much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology. Our greater material wealth over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of subjective well-being. Those who pursue materialism tend to be less satisfied and experience fewer positive emotions every day. Body image is also at an all-time low. A recent body image survey taken by Psychology Today reports more discontent with the shape of our bodies than ever before. BBC published an article in March compelling a systematic review of 20 different studies published in 2016 that found that photo-based activities, so like scrolling through Instagram or posting selfies on the internet, they contributed significantly to negative thoughts about the body. Numerous studies conducted by social psychologists conclude that social media and websites and apps that everyone uses tend to result in greater negativity regarding self-image and a greater preoccupation with the self and self-objectification. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> the World Economic Forum, in setting out to, to find out how today's Americans quantify success, discovered that the pursuit of success has become a part of our cultural DNA. It's not surprising to us. Everyone wants to be successful, and many see it as an essential part of the American dream. 
After surveying 2,000 young Americans, they concluded the following, and this is fascinating to me. Success is defined by being married, having two kids, having four best friends, holding a bachelor's degree, making $147,000 a year. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm a pastor. You can figure that one out. Working 34 hours a week, having a commute time of 10 minutes or working from home, 5.3 weeks off a year, traveling three times a year, having a house value of $461,000, and having a car value of $41,000. All right, I'm done. <laughs> what are we to do with these? Well, career, body, the kind of car you drive, the house you have, the size family you have, all of these are cultural markers that can define our ambitions, form our habits, form our affections, and form our values. Did you see yourself in any of those? David Foster Wallace, a prolific writer, author, and speaker, he told graduates at a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and I'm not going to put this up on the screen, you can just hear it, but his beautiful picture is up there, so you can just imagine that he's telling this to you. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. And this is a secular writer. David Foster Wallace was a secular writer. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body, beauty, and sexual allure, then you will always be feeling ugly. And then when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before it finally grieves you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I'm sure you can tell what I'm driving at here. These are cultural narratives that we soak in day in and day out. So if we were fish, this is the water in which we live and move. When we walk in here on Sunday mornings, our clothes are soaked with these narratives. We struggle in a culture that wants to define our dreams, our value systems, and our self-worth. And so as we approach the passage this morning, which is Revelation 1, 9 through 20, we're going to be looking at this theme of worship that David Foster Wallace fleshed out. And specifically, if there's one takeaway that I want you to have this morning, it's that your witness is defined by your worship. Your witness is defined by your worship. And your witness is your testimony. It's your story. It's who you are. You can't fake it. You bear witness to what you worship. You are molded and formed by it. And it's not just your individual witness that's at stake. It's also our witness collectively as the body of Christ. We are a witness to what we worship. So before we flesh out this idea, I want to jump to our passage a little bit, and specifically verse 12. Would you look with me at verse 12? Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So John turns around, and he's looking for a voice, but he immediately sees seven golden lampstands. And so what are we to do with these lampstands? What does that mean? So I think now is as good a time as any to talk about the nature of apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is. And this is important for us because we're going to be spending some time in Revelation, and we're going to be coming across a lot of symbols that might not make sense immediately to us. And so here's some of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature. You have cosmic dualism, which is this battle between good and evil. 
You have spiritual conflict. There's ultimate divine sovereignty. And there are these, also these esoteric symbols and figurative language. And Revelation isn't the only place we find apocalyptic literature in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. It's in Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel. It's also in some of the Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. So it's in a lot of different places. But why use symbols? Why symbols? Well, symbols, if you took an English class at some point, symbols are flexible and they're relevant throughout time. And they also describe reality in an evocative way. So symbols, like, poetry, like in poetry or other types of literature, they invite us into a description of reality that challenges us, but yet rings deeply true. So I like to describe symbols, especially in apocalyptic literature, as a literary Trojan horse. And maybe some of you know what a Trojan horse is because you watched the movie Troy with shirtless Brad Pitt. It's a great movie. I'm not hating on that movie. So you know what a Trojan horse is, right? It looks like one thing. It looks like one thing, and then, but it's delivering a very different message. And that's what a Trojan horse is or symbols are. What they're doing is they look like one thing on the outside, and then you peel back the layer, and it looks like something different. It's delivering a very different message. So why would John write in apocalyptic literature? Well, two reasons. John is inviting us into a different perspective. This is a transcendent perspective. John has a heavenly orientation here through this vision, and he is inviting us to participate in it with him if we can. And then second, Revelation and apocalyptic literature in general, it's literature that resists the cultural narrative of the day. So apocalyptic literature is ultimately resisting literature. It peels back that layer and reveals what is ultimately true behind the surface level, so behind outward appearances. So what, what's with these golden lampstands? Let's get back to that. We took a short deviation from our passage. What, what's with these seven lampstands? And we actually find out later in our passage, we, we find out what these lampstands are. Verse 20 says that Jesus tells us what they are. They are the seven churches. So the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And if this isn't ringing a bell in your head, just remind, like, remind yourself what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. And neither does someone light a lamp and they stick it under a basket. No, they set it on its stand and it gives light to everything in the house. And then John also says that the Son of Man was found amidst the lampstands. So what he's communicating to us is that these, our witness as the church is God's very presence. Our witness as the church is God's very presence. And so we have a choice. We are witnesses either to our own pursuits or to God's very presence. The Son of Man was standing amidst the lampstands. This is ultimately what makes us unique as a church. We have the gift of God's presence to offer a world in desperate need. So what would it look like if we as the church lived out God's presence in our world today? And what would it look like too if we, practically speaking, pursued God's presence? Let's take that first question. What would it look like if we actually lived out God's presence in our world today? And take, this is just one example our time is known by social commentators as the age of anxiety. And that's because people, social commentators are saying 39% of people are more anxious today than they were a year ago. It's astounding. So in this age of anxiety, we as the church can offer God's presence. We can live as a people underneath the Prince of Peace. And we can offer God's peace to a world that's riddled with anxiety. In his book, The Failure of Nerve, family therapist Edwin Friedman chronicles the descent of the West 
into this chronic anxiety. And I'm going to throw up a little, uh, this is a cycle that he talks about in his book, The Failure of Nerve. And we're going to run through this really quick. But these are the evidences of a chronically anxious culture. He says, first, the first stage is reactivity. So people react to external stimuli with fear, outrage, and jealousy. And then they have, then there's stage two is this hurting instinct where people take on a mob mentality. The third cycle, the third stage is blame displacement displacement. We retreat into a perpetual victim status and we blame others for our problems. The fourth stage is a quick fix mentality. In this age of instant gratification, we are looking for simple answers to complex problems. And then the fifth stage is a lack of well-differentiated leaders. There are a lack of leaders who have the capacity to break this cycle. And you can see the arrow. It's pointing to the center. And so Friedman's answer to this cycle is a non-anxious presence. He said there is someone, a leader, who is able to break this cycle, and it's a non-anxious presence. This is a leader who refuses to get caught up in the cycle of anxiety, and they're able to be exterior to it and stand firm at peace and calm. So as a pastor, I'm often trying to figure out, I'm asking the question a lot, what should be the church's witness in this moment? And it certainly cannot be reactivity, which is made so easy by our smartphones and the convenience of those things. We can tweet off something in an instant. And it can't be a hurting instinct, which leads to mob mentality so that we're fighting social wars for societal power. And it can't be anything else in that cycle. The church's witness in this world must be God's presence to an anxious world, God's non-anxious presence to an anxious world. We're witnesses, either to our own pursuits or to God's presence. And that leads me to the second question that I asked, which is, what would it look like, practically speaking, to pursue God's presence? I think it looks like two things. The first is that our imaginations must be captured by the power and the authority of Jesus. If we really understand that God is sovereign and in control, then we won't get caught up in the anxiety of our age. And our passage actually reveals to us the power and the authority of Jesus. Turn with me to verses 13 through 16, and we'll run through this really quick. John describes Jesus using symbols again. He says this, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So this golden sash around his chest and this long robe. This is the mark of a high priest. Jesus is the high priest between God and man. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. John is referencing Daniel 7 and 10. Daniel describes the ancient of days there. And he's, John is using that same language and applying it to Jesus. So really what he's saying is make no mistake, Jesus is God. In verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. We just finished up Genesis. This is the same voice that spoke the world into existence. In Ezekiel 43, he describes God's voice the same way, like the sound of rushing waters. In verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. The author of Hebrews states that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces between spirit and heart, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our spirit. So after this description, 
We're told that John is laying flat on his face, and I probably were too if I was receiving that vision and seeing Jesus stand in front of me. And what we, what we see is that Jesus comes up to John and he puts his right hand on him. I'm astonished by that. It's an act of compassion, of course. Jesus puts his right hand on John. And then he says this in verse 17. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I alone have the keys of death and Hades. So is this the Jesus that captures our imagination? This passage encourages us to take Jesus on his own terms, not the terms that we would like to ascribe to him. And then second, Jesus is captured by our imaginations as we pray. And so Jesus' life was, prayer was central to Jesus' life. We read in Luke 21 that Jesus went off to pray, as was his custom. So there's stories in the Gospels where Jesus is actually standing before crowds. He refuses to heal people that are sitting in front of him that need to be healed. He refuses to minister to people who are sitting there waiting for the words of life, and he departs and retreats in order to pray. And I'm often confused by that, but let me use my imagination, my hermeneutical imagination, and just say that I think I know why Jesus is doing that. And that's because he knew he needed to get into the presence of his father. Jesus said, I only do what my father tells me to do. So how can he do, how can he listen to his father if he's not with him? And if this is the pattern of Jesus' life, how much more does it need to be the pattern of our lives? If you are anything like me, when you have a busy day, Prayer is often the first thing that goes out the window. This is my prayer at the beginning of a busy day. Jesus, help me. All right, I'm going to go eat my cereal. That's, that's pretty much what it is. And, and, and when life is busy, for many of us, that's what happens. Prayer is one of the first things that goes out the window. But this is a pattern of Jesus' life that he's encouraging us to adopt. It's God's heart to commune with him, that we would commune with him and that we would spend time with him. He wants a relationship with us. So if this is the pattern of Jesus' life, then we should pray as well. Are you thirsty for God's presence? Is that what your soul is crying out for? And I'd encourage you to pray. Our imaginations are captured by Jesus through prayer. And as the church, we are witnesses either to our own pursuits or to God's presence. So we need to attach this witness idea with this idea of worship that I talked about before. And this is the connecting piece right here. We are witnesses or we are worshipers, either to our ruin or to our restoration. And what I'm basically saying here is that we become like what we love. We're worshipers. To be human is to worship. And we bear witness to what we worship. It's just what happens. We, what we, whatever we worship, it forms and molds us. And that's what David Foster Wallace was talking about before. If we worship sex, money, power, career, those things are going to eat us alive in the end. But if we, if we are formed around the worship of God, God will make us into his own image. Take John, for example, who's writing the book that, writing the scripture that we're studying this morning. John also wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, those epistles. And if we look at John's life in the Gospel of John, he started out as, right, God, Jesus named him the son, one of the sons of thunder, right? And he was jostling for position amongst the disciples. He said he wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus, on the throne of God. And he didn't even know what that means, but he wanted it. And then this is the same John that later on pens the one another's of Scripture that we find in abundance in 1 John, which is love one another, love one another, love one another. 
we are able to see his maturity and his formation throughout his life. And even here, as he's writing the scripture, he is exiled in Patmos. And scholars believe that he was exiled under direct order of Emperor Domitian. And he left Ephesus, which was the closest big city, in order to go to Patmos and be exiled there. And we don't know if there was a body of believers who were worshiping with him. But what we do know is even in exile, he is participating in these Christian practices that formed him. It says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which means he was worshiping on Sunday. On Sunday morning, he was continuing in these formational practices in order that he would worship God with his life. And that's why we bother with church on Sundays. It's a practice that we have in common with brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the centuries because worship here on Sunday mornings is formational. And whether or not you knew this, this service is all about Christian formation. The service is not about how many people come. It's not about putting on a good performance on the stage that's entertaining to us and so that other people can evaluate us up on stage. That's not what this is about. What happens, what's happening here and what, what, what it means to gather together is that we are formed into the image of Jesus. That's what matters in this place. And so if we stay home and read the Bible, which is a good thing in and of itself, but we're going to miss a lot because it's going to be limited by what we don't know. We're going to bring the presuppositions that we already have with it to it, and it's going to be distorted by our culture. But the word of God is everywhere in this service, and you probably caught on to that. It's in the call to worship at the very beginning of this service. It's in the benediction, which is the last thing that you hear on your way out. We read scripture, and then we say, as we all go off to our various vocations and callings, would you hear this blessing over your continued worship this week? And then scripture is in the songs that we sing, which are more or less just paraphrases of scripture. And then hopefully, hopefully, scripture is in the sermon, <laughs> where a preacher struggles with the text in order to bring the truth of scripture to a congregation so that we are all more focused and our attention is on God. So Sunday worship matters. It sustains us, it energizes, and it guides the all-of-life worship that we're called to. A number of months ago, Pastor Gabe wrote a brilliant blog on the Christ Community website. So I encourage you to go check it out. Really, it's excellent. And in it, he's basically saying, this is why, we, this is why it's still important to go to church, even in the 21st century. And one of the things that he notes there is that it's a very Western idea to think that the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and my relationship is between me and God. That's a product of our individualization as a Western culture. It's a more Eastern notion and a more biblical notion to believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in us collectively as the body of Christ. And so we gather together for mutual encouragement, to build each other up, to hear scripture, to sing songs together, to recite hymns and creeds together like we did this morning. This is a practice that's been happening with Christians for centuries. And it's not a mistake that the metaphor that God has for his church is the body of Christ. So for example, if I was to chop off my hand and just set it right here, on this platform. Yeah, that would look really weird and blood would be gushing from it and it just doesn't make any sense. It just looks weird, right? But if it's attached to my body and the nervous system is connected and there's blood that's running through it, it's useful for something. And same goes with us. This is not a faith that we can lone wolf. God designed our faith to be inherently communal. We need each other. And that's why we gather on Sunday mornings together. When I decided to go to seminary, 
Um, I was encouraged to go to seminary by some mentors who told me I needed biblical training, and I definitely did, and I'm so thankful that I went to seminary and got really, really good biblical training. Uh, Same school that Gabe went to, same school that Henry went to. We all went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But when I was about a year in, I realized that my knowledge of God or my knowledge about him wasn't going to directly translate to my capacity to worship him. That's just not how it works. We live in a generation that has more theology than ever before. I have a Logos Bible software on my phone, which I paid way too much money for, but I have access to thousands and thousands of books, theological materials. I could study Greek and Hebrew. I could read the early church fathers. Anything that I want is at my fingertips. And I don't think Christians 200 years ago could have imagined the theology that we have available to us now. There's more PhDs in theology out there than ever before, and it's so difficult to find a teaching job for a PhD in theology because the market's so saturated. This is my point, is that we still, even with all of that, live in one of the most secular generations ever. The transformational presence of God is what changes us. There's not a direct correlation between knowledge of God and our capacity to worship him. It's the presence of God that changes us, informs us, and transforms us. If we want to encounter the transformational presence of God, the avenue to do that is through worship. We worship him by offering up our whole lives to God. God invites our whole selves. But that means that he gets to define our value system, our habits, and our ambitions. And that whole of life worship is sustained and it's supplemented through this Sunday morning worship service that happens this morning. Our faith is inherently communal. We're the body of Christ. It's how God designed it. So as a recap, we are worshipers, either to our ruin or to our restoration. When we worship things other than God, we become like those things. And when we worship God, we become like him as well. You're always being formed. The question is not if you're being formed, it's what is forming you or who is forming you. And this aligns with the fact that we're also witnesses. We're witnesses either to our own pursuits or to God's presence. So your testimony is your story. It's who you are. You can't fake it. And your pursuits are shown in your habits. Our witness is defined by our worship. And I want to add an element to that, is that I want to say our witness is defined by the one whom we worship. Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, who died and now reigns and acts as a high priest for us. He is the one that gets to define our worship. And it's God's heart to make you into his image for your own flourishing, like Mark Dungan talked about in the member moment. I want to close with a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know that Bonhoeffer has played a huge role in my life. He's one of my spiritual heroes. And I think Bonhoeffer's writings are brilliant, of course, but his life testimony is equally powerful, if not more powerful. And Bonhoeffer was born into a secular home in Germany. Um, He was from basically German nobility. His dad was one of the uh, greatest minds in psychiatry at the University of Berlin at the time, world-renowned. His brother split the atom with atomic bomb, with, uh, of the atom with Albert Einstein, right? Um, so, I mean, this is, I mean, this is a family, right? Um, so he comes from that family, and they were very dismayed when Dietrich Bonhoeffer decided he wanted to go and study theology. And so he has a, when he was coming into his own as a pastor and as a theologian, Hitler was gaining power in Germany. And so Bonhoeffer was a part of this thing called the Confessing Church, where pastors and theologians and church members, they gathered together to refuse to adopt the cultural narratives of the day that the Nazi regime was putting out there in society. They refused the Nazi nationalism and other narratives. 
And so Bonhoeffer, you might not know this, but Bonhoeffer started a seminary up in the north of Germany, right on the Poland and German bo- Germany bo- Germany's border. It was in a place called Finkenwalder. And at this seminary, it was a small seminary, only lasted for two years, he made these students live a very regimented lifestyle. And he would write about this lifestyle to his pastor friends, and they would write back saying, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're requiring way too much of these students. It almost it looks like legalism. And so Bonhoeffer invited his friends to come to the seminary, and one friend did. And in one of uh, Bonhoeffer's biographies, there's this mo- they recount this story of Bonhoeffer and his friend that rowing, waking up one morning, rowing across a river, and they climbed up this hill, and they sat down. And what they could see in the distance was Nazi airplanes taking off and landing at this airstrip, and Hitler kind of amassing his troops right there. And Bonhoeffer is said to have looked back at the seminary, which they could see, and he said, this, this must be stronger than that. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And Jeff, Pastor John Tyson, a pastor out of New York City, he says this. He says, here is Bonhoeffer pointing at a ragged little school for preachers and then pointing at Hitler amassing his troops. And in the prophetic tradition of contrast, he says this, this, the people of God, must be stronger than that, the discipline of the world around us. This must be stronger than that. And so we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship God so that our witness might be strong. And we have a narrative here together. We have a cultural narrative that binds us together, and that's the gospel story. And it is stronger and more powerful and more satisfying than anything else out there in the world. And the gospel story reminds us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins before we were even born and before we even cared. And Jesus gave of himself so that we might know life and know it to the full. And so if you are struggling this morning in this age of anxiety, and your soul is crying out for God's presence because it's dry, well, I encourage you to pray and take this moment as we head into communion to pray to him and invite God to minister to you with his presence. And then if you were sitting there during the sermon and thinking, man, I might need to reorder my loves, shoot, well, that's okay. I'd ask you to pray and ask God to partner with you in that task of making Jesus first so that everything else would be formed underneath it and everything else will fall into place if Jesus is first in your life. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you that we can gather together as your people underneath your banner this morning. Father, I ask that you would encourage those hearts that are discouraged, that you would bring hope to the hopeless and in this age of anxiety, that you would give us your peace and abundance by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're crying out for you. We need your help to live in this world today. I ask, Lord, that as we offer up our lives as living sacrifices to you, would you empower us to do that in a posture of whole life worship? Father, we love you. May our witness to the world be your very presence. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.